Amen, amen. Well, you may be seated again. Welcome to Mercy Fellowship, where we are saved by Jesus' work. We are changed by Jesus' grace, and we're living on Jesus' mission. And that means that we believe that we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ who love God and who love people. And so part of how we do that on a Sunday morning is just uh, taking large sections of Scripture and just trying to have God's story impact and inform our story. And so um, we've been in the book of Daniel um, all fall, and so today we're going to be in Daniel Daniel chapter 9. Uh, on your way in, if you haven't grabbed one, you can grab one of these scripture journals. It's just the, the book of Daniel, and you can turn there. As well, we have our discipleship guide, which just kind of lets you know some of the outlines of what we're doing here during the sermons, and then also has some questions and prayers for you to reflect on during the week. And so, uh, Daniel chapter 9, I mean, uh, when we started this series, you know, a lot of you probably came in, if you have any church background at all, you're like, I know Daniel because I know the lion's den, or I know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace, or maybe you have no church background. You're like, actually, I don't know any of that. But Daniel, the first six chapters, very narrative focused. Here's stories of Daniel and his friends in exile, how they went from being uh, in Jerusalem, part of God's people, to being in a pagan capital, uh, and then how they navigated that. And the second half of Daniel, so 7 through 12, um, is some prophetic visions and prayers uh, that Daniel has that, that kind of peel back um, kind of the curtain, if you will, of the events that we see unfolding before us to like some of the spiritual realities behind them. And that leads us here to Daniel chapter 9. Last week, um, we saw um, Daniel kind of given a, a really intense vision of how things go in the end. Uh, and he was, it said at the end that he was troubled. He was confused. And we said, that's an okay place to be. And maybe as you come in this morning, you haven't been to church in a while, or maybe um, you know, church is a difficult place for you to be in. Garrett mentioned that. Maybe you're troubled. Maybe you're confused. Maybe you're trying to figure some things out. This is a great place to do this because Daniel had difficulty with what God was trying to tell him. And then we closed last week by saying, and he went about the king's business. He went about doing what God had called him to do. We're going to fast forward a couple years from that um, uh, to Daniel chapter 9 here. And as we do, I want you to ask yourself, why, why do we suffer? Who's in charge of world affairs? Who's, who's the captain of our souls? Who, who helps navigate the world for us? And where do you go to for clarity when you're unsettled? Daniel, like we said last time, went back to work, still not understanding we fast forward a couple years here to Daniel chapter 9, and Daniel is going to end up praying. A lot of this sermon is about a prayer that Daniel uh, gives, and as we close today, uh, we're going to have some time together in prayer. But I want us to start, and I've broken this up into six different sections. We're going to start with verses 1 through 3 in chapter 9, and we're going to see Daniel's preparation before he even prays. Before he even like, tries to seek what God wants for his life or, or how things are going in the world, he starts with this, verses 1 through 3. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent uh, Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Okay, you come in, you have no idea what's going on, that's okay. Here's Daniel, he's been in exile for now about 66 years. 
And he has gone through a massive political shift. He's gone through a massive worldview shift, governmental shift. He went through a big one when he was young. Now he's in his 80s or 90s, and the world that he's been navigating for the last 66 years, about a year or so ago, got completely unsettled as the Babylonians got taken out and the Chaldeans, or rather than the Medes and Persians, came in. And he's trying to figure out, God, what do you, what do you have going on? And what I love about this, this is the year um, uh, uh, 539 BC, been in exile, like we said, for about 66 years. That started back in 605 BC. And he's trying to find some hope. He's trying to find some clarity about what's going on in the world. And what I love is that it doesn't say, and so Daniel went to Twitter and he just started doom scrolling and somehow he found some good news. Or or he's like, Daniel went and he turned on cable news and after two, three hours felt so much better about the condition of the world. His own soul was better. He loved his neighbor better after it. No, it didn't say, and Daniel went to the most elite of the culture and said, well, speak some knowledge on me, sociology professor. Tell me all the things. No, he went to God's word. He said, hey, I want to know what's going on in the world. Why don't I try to figure out something from the one who created the world? And it says, he went to the word of the Lord, specifically in the prophet Jeremiah. So as he's preparing to pray, as he's trying to process what's going on in the world, where he goes to first is God's word. And so I want you to ask yourself, like, where do you go? Where do you run to when you're trying to process things? What's your foundational worldview? For Daniel, it was God's word. And so he says he's reading there in uh, Jeremiah. He's likely reading Jeremiah 25, 11 and 12, which says this. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I'll punish the king of Babylon, that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, that's another word for sin, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. So Daniel comes in with a posture of God, help me see the world the way you see the world. Help me see your people the way you see your people. Help me understand where my heart is going and my anxiety and the things I'm worried about through your eternal perspective. Daniel's response to reading and hearing God's promise of deliverance isn't increased apathy, but intensified action. See, I I think if you read a promise where it says, hey, God's gonna come in and he's gonna take care of everything against your enemy, uh, that's that's great. You're like, cool, I'll just step back and let God do his thing. Like, yeah, we should trust the Lord, but for Daniel and for us, having an understanding of God's promises, having an understanding of what God's trying to do in the world should not lead us to greater apathy. It should lead us to greater action. And in this case specifically, the action that Daniel takes is not, okay, let me start rallying a big political action committee. Let me like, you know, try to, try to um, launch some big initiative. He's like, okay, so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna have a posture a disposition of prayer, of humility. He doesn't say, God, well, I know you got this, so why would I even engage? It says says specifically here in verse three, I turned my face to the Lord. Where do you turn your face to? Where do you orient your heart's affections? Where do you um, uh, place and set your um, foundation 
particularly when you're unsettled. He seeks God in prayer. His promises, his purposes, God's promises and purposes are being revealed through his word. So I'm gonna respond, he says, in prayer. Daniel has a longing for the desolation to end. He's like, I've been in exile for 66 years. You said I got four more. When's it gonna end? What's it gonna look like? And so what, what, what I want us to take from this is it is okay for you to have longings for things in your life to be better for things in this world to be better, for things in our community to be better. That is a good and righteous longing. And then I want you to ask yourself, where and how do I direct those longings? For Daniel, it was to prayer. What are your deepest desires for yourself? What are your deepest desires for others? And what are those desires that you do for Daniel? It led to prayer, and we're gonna read that here, verses nine, uh, sorry, verses four through 11. It's a long prayer, again, I've broken up. Daniel uh, 9, 4 through 11 says this. I prayed to the Lord, my God, and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong, acted wickedly and rebelled, turned aside from your commandments and rules. We've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. But to us, it's open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near, those who are far away, in all the lands to which you've driven them, because of the treachery, that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we've sinned against you. To the Lord our God, belong mercy and forgiveness, for we've rebelled against him. Have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants and prophets. Verse 11, all Israel, has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out upon us because we have sinned against it. Okay, there, there's, there's some intensity in this prayer. There's a, a heartbrokenness that he has in this prayer. There's hope as well in this prayer too because we're gonna, in this sermon, in this prayer, we're gonna look at sin. We're gonna talk about sin. But that's not where Daniel starts. And so while this is a specific prayer that Daniel has for his people who are in exile, I absolutely believe that this prayer is instructive for all of us here today, for the church at large, in terms of how to pray. I think there's, there's some tools here in how to pray. That we're not Daniel, but, but we do experience the, the, the longing of exile. None of us are in a perfect garden. None of us are in a perfect forever city. We're, we're all in this in-between place where like, yeah, there's, there's moments that are good. There's moments that are great. I mean, man, I will take 22 degrees in sunshine all day long before I'll take the like four, five, six days of gray we had a couple weeks ago. Like, God's face shine upon us. Please keep shining, right? Like there's good things to enjoy. Something you did this weekend was probably fun. And if not, I hope you have some fun after this. Okay? You're not gonna have fun now, it's church, we don't have fun, okay? 
Right? If, there's, if there's things you enjoy like that, that's great, but, but there's, there's also things that we know that are, are broken, and so all of us are in this place of exile. That Daniel, in his focus on the suffering and brokenness he sees, what, what's interesting about this is, if I'm Daniel, I'm like, God, what, can, what are you doing with the Babylonians? God, what are you doing with the Medes and Persians? Can you believe how jacked up like these hardcore progressives are, God? Can you believe how jacked up these, these hardcore nationalists are, God? No, what, what does he do? His, his prayer, his concern is for God's people. God, God yeah, I, I, I don't have any expectation, God, that these nations that say they don't worship you are gonna worship you. Like, we should never be shocked when non-Christians act like non-Christians. We should never be shocked when people who, who don't believe in the God of the Bible, who don't, don't see the, the, the world as one that's created good, where sin has entered, that has been redeemed by Jesus and will be restored in his return, that, that, that they act differently. His concern is actually for the sin, for the brokenness of God's people. So his prayer is about God's people. And it's a prayer of confession. And, and while confession's like a, a word we don't use a lot and, and, and we start thinking kind of Catholic-y, right? Like to, to confess something is just to say something's true. And so in this case, he begins his confession with the character and nature of God. I think, like think about that for a second. He begins confession not with what's wrong about him or wrong about God's people, but what's right about God. He begins confession with what's right about God. And he says, God, you, you're great. You are awesome. And not like everything's awesome Lego movie, right? But like, God, you are awe-inspiring. God, as powerful as these nations are that are overrunning my people, as powerful as these nations are that are fighting against one another, God, you are the one who's great. You're the one who is awe-inspiring. God, you inspire me towards greater worship. God, you're not just good. You are great. Why are you great, God? It says because he keeps his covenant. That means God's reliable. It means God's made promises to and for his people. And regardless of whether you're faithful, whether God's people are faithful, God says, I'm gonna still do my end. In fact, I'm not just gonna fulfill my end. I'm gonna be faithful even when you're not faithful. Say, God, I can, God, I can be true with you about who I am. I can be true with you, God, about my sin, about my brokenness, uh, about uh, my errors, about my shame, about uh, the ways I've harmed other people, about the things that have been done to me, because, God, you are so great, and you are so faithful to your people. To say he keeps his covenant means, for lack of a better term, God's reliable. You can rely on God. You can trust God, even when everything else, including your own soul, doesn't feel trustworthy. It's faithfulness, it's the trustworthiness of God, it's, it's steadfast love, it's unwavering. Another uh, way that it translates is no hesitation. Meaning there's not a moment where you've somehow sinned that God's like, shoot, I don't know if that's one of mine, right? It, you, you ever like been at a party or maybe you're out at the store and, and you haven't seen your kids uh, and, and like, but you hear, a, you hear a crash and you're like, I just hope that's, and you hear a cry, and like, I just hope that's somebody else's kid, right? 
God doesn't do that with you. God's like, no, that's mine. Yep, my kid, right here. I'll be faithful. I'll be steadfast. God doesn't hesitate to love you. God doesn't hesitate to pursue you. God doesn't hesitate to keep his covenant. He says, God, you give commandments. Ooh, oh, oh. Well, if we don't like confession, we don't like covenants, we for sure don't like commandments. No, see, there's an order that he lays this out. He says, first, God, you're great and awesome. God, you're faithful and true. That means that, God, when you tell us something, when you instruct us, when you give us a command, God, it's because you're awesome. It's because you're good. It's because you're faithful. So that means your commandments are for our flourishing, are for our joy, are for your glory. It means, God, that when you've called us to live and act and respond a certain way, it is out of that awesome, great, steadfast love for us. And he says, God sends prophets. He said, God, you sent prophets, he says here in these middle verses, to, to speak to every strand of society. He said, you spoke to kings, you spoke to princes, you spoke to fathers, you spoke to all the people. So he's starting with kind of national leadership, regional, into kind of family and community, through all the people. And he said, hey, all we did was not listen to any of them. We all went our own way. God, you are righteous, you are justified, you are excellent, and, and you're just. But we haven't followed you, God. We haven't listened, we haven't responded. And then he throws this in, he doesn't throw it in, it's, it's so huge. God, you are merciful. Verse nine, to you, the Lord our God, belongs mercy and forgiveness. So he confesses first who, who's God. And then he confesses who have we been. And he's speaking for his people. So I like to, like Daniel's not like, God, your people did this. You know, Daniel identifies himself with his people. Like, I think we get, particularly in the church, we're like, oh, you know, God, do, please forgive that part of the church over there. Or God, please, like, Lord, we're, we're, we're Christian. You know, like, God, I, I don't want to be identified with those Christians. Now, guess what? You're either on team Jesus or you're not. And so, like, we're all part of the family, and yeah, we're kind of a dysfunctional family, but we've got a good and loving father. And he says, hey, God, who, or who we are, he confesses his sin, his own sin, his people. He, he, said, he doesn't say those people. He says, we, us. He's not setting himself above the people. So in response to who God is, he says, this is what we've done. He says, God, we've sinned. He says, we've done wrong, we've acted wickedly, we've rebelled, we've turned away from good commandments. See, I don't think we need to be like throwing out the word sin all the time, but I think, man, if you never throw that word out, you're not being faithful to what the Bible talks about, our response to who God is. Sin is rejection of God's laws. It's not walking in the way God has decreed. It's rebelling against God's will and rule and reign. And sin is also something that's done to you. We all, man, we've all felt that. Sin is what we do to others when we harm others. Sin's also this word iniquity, which we'll get to in a minute, that, that really talks about this bent out of shapeness. Just like, ooh, man, there's just, things don't, it's not, not supposed to be this way. There's transgression, there's sin, there's iniquity. 
And he says, a rejection of God, he describes as treacherous. God, you sent prophets, we didn't listen. Put simply, to obey the voice of the Lord is to walk in his ways. So how does God respond? He kind of goes on, he continues his prayer and just kind of, God, this is, how, like, this is how we acted. Lord, you're great. We walked in sin and there was consequences. So this to my kids at a very young age. Sin hurts and sin has consequences. And Daniel starts to talk about those here in section three, verses 12 through 15, says this. He's conformed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For the whole of heaven, there's not been done anything like what's been done against Jerusalem. As it is written, the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we've not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquity to gain insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works he's done. And we've not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made a name for yourself, as at this day we've sinned, we've done wickedly. So here's Daniel. God's good, God's awesome. We've responded with sin. And now we see that God actually responds with justice at times. And I, I, I had this section named, because I have them all named, right? Section one was preparation. Section two is prayer. Section three was, I named it punishment. But, but I think that's, that doesn't quite get at what I want to say. I'd rather say purposeful discipline. Because what Daniel's not talking about here is eternal punishment. He's talking about a just consequence, an earthly, in-time, real-world consequence for sin. See, we don't need to walk around wondering if God our Father is ready to punish us because we're Christians. We believe that God's punishment for sin has been taken out on the cross of Jesus. And so we don't have to fear eternity if our identity is in Christ. But what we, what we do understand is that a, a good and loving Father, Hebrews 12 says, disciplines his children. And so that does mean, like I said, that sin hurts and sin has consequences. And it's like, well, gosh, I thought we said God was loving and faithful and merciful and forgiving. What's, what's all this justice stuff? What happened to the love? God is not okay with us being okay with sin. God is not like, hey, this sin which separates you from me, separates you from each other, separates you from yourself even in shame, just go with it. You do you. No, God wants your flourishing. God wants communion with, with you and him. He wants communion with you and his people. He wants you to be a, a wholly integrated person, mind, body, and soul. And when there's sin happening, it, it's, it, it's, it's his goodness to allow us to be uncomfortable with sin. To, to feel, oh gosh, I, like, you ever just blow up at somebody? And then like, maybe they don't want to talk to you for a while afterwards and it feels a little awkward? Well, some of that's the shame, right? But some of it's like, you shouldn't feel great just blowing up at people. Like there should be a little like, oh, man, I, I harmed somebody else. 
or I wasn't kind. Maybe I need to ask for forgiveness. Maybe I need to say I'm sorry. Maybe I need to, to actually repent, to turn from walking in sin to what it says here, to, to follow the truth. See, Daniel recognizes in his prayer that the suffering that they have experienced, that God's people experienced, was actually because of their faithlessness. Like, God gave them a promised land. He said, gave them the Ten Commandments. He's like, hey, go, go build a flourishing society with my will and my word. And they were faithless. And there were these cycles of walking in sin and forgiveness and back and forth. And ultimately, God's like, hey, there, I told you there's consequences if you keep going this direction. And so God's people in this moment are suffering, but, it, but it's not forever. Now, this 70 years sounds like a long time. And, and I want to be clear. Sometimes you and I are suffering because others have sinned against us. Sometimes you and I suffer injustice because there's societal things that are difficult or, or political or geopolitical things that are broken and wrong. And sometimes we suffer because of our own sin. Um, early um, in our marriage, both Tara and I, before we got married, uh, were not good with finances. And I don't mean just like not good, but like we just always spent more than we had. And like, you can't do that. And so we incurred large amounts of debt going into our marriage. And then we had the, the twins and there was big medical bills and all these different things. And so we, like, we had like a really absurd amount of debt in our first couple years. And so we, we had to repent of, of not managing our finances well and actually follow some godly principles around saving and giving and, and, and debt reduction and things like that. Like cut back our lifestyle and all that stuff. Like it included some like living with the in-laws. Woo! Right? Suffering. You want 70 years? It wasn't 70 years. I think it was like three and a half, but whoo! Right? Exile. <laughs> but we still felt the consequences of our sin. And, and, and we still had to repent, and we couldn't just be like, well, God, we're no longer sitting with our finances anymore. Like, yeah, and, and, and then we had to, to walk in a different way. And it took a while for us to get to a place where we were, we, we, we were debt-free. And so... Like, we shouldn't be afraid of there's times where sin ha hurts and sin has consequences. But what God has called us to specifically is repentance. And I, I say that because Daniel points out, God, your people were walking in sin. God, your people faced suffering and consequences for that sin. And then it says, and they didn't seek your favor. They didn't seek your face. They didn't turn from their sin to follow the truth of God. That's what verse 13 says. It frames it this way, right? In verse 13, it says, as it's written, like all this calamity came upon us, um, yet we've not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities, meaning sin, and turning towards your truth. He's saying, God, there needed to be repentance. When we pray and we confess, we should also be asking for repentance. The Bible describes repentance as a gift given by God through the Holy Spirit. That means like something you can desire and it's something God can give. Lord, help me to repent of a sinful attitude. Lord, help me repent of being harsh. Or, you know, I don't know what it is for you. I bet you know. And if you don't, if, you've, if you're married, you can probably ask your spouse. They might know. Go easy on that one, Right? He says, God, I know, God, that you're a saving God. 
as he says, you saved your people from Egypt with a mighty hand. And so he's, he's prepared, he's prayed, he's talked about purposeful discipline, and here in verse four, he, or part four, he begins this plea for 16 through 19. It says this, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people, we've become a byword among um, all who are around us. Now therefore, O um, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant, to his pleas for mercy, for your own sake, O Lord. Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes. See our desolations for the city that's called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. Oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. We started with a disposition of Daniel seeing the word, uh, the world through God's word that led him to humble prayer of confession of God's goodness and greatness, of, of our sin, our rejection, saying, hey God, I understand we're called to repent and we haven't. God, I'm pleading for you now, bring mercy. God, I'm pleading for you now to change the circumstances and the atmosphere that we find ourselves in. This confession and repentance leads to a desperate plea. God, you are justified to give us these consequences. God, you're just. But God, I also know you're merciful. And so, we're pleading for mercy. In doing so, he acknowledges that it's a right and good thing for God to be just, for God to give just consequences for sin. He starts with that. And then he shifts and he says, God, we've gone from forsaken and now we want your favor. God, turn your wrath away from us. God, more than turning your wrath away, see the broken condition. Like, God, see how your people are doing it. And God, in this place of desolation, in this place of darkness, Lord, let your face shine upon us. He's specifically asking for favor from God. God, the way things are going seem pretty dang dark. Lord, could you shine your face upon us? Lord, would you give us favor? Lord, you move us from being forsaken to enjoying your favor. Lord, take us to a place of communion and worship because when he's talking about Jerusalem, that's the, the place of communion with God and his people. He says, God, your place of communion, your place of life and flourishing and fullness, it is desolate, it is dead, it is empty. God, bring wholeness. Bring life, bring restoration. And this gospel truth in verse 18, God, incline your ear, open your eyes. He says, for we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. That is what we call gospel truth. Daniel's not saying, hey God, we are an oppressed people. We are victims of a horrible society. Can you smite our evil oppressors and rise us up? God, we are righteous. 
He says, God, save us. Not because of our greatness, but because of your greatness. I want us to understand the truth of the good news of the gospel. That's different than religion. Religion says you do good and God has to save you. So you better do good for goodness sake. Right? You better not cry. You better not pout. Advent's coming next week, right? God becomes Santa Claus. Santa Claus sounds awful. Right? Hey, got a good year? Didn't? Lump of coal. Okay? Our God doesn't do lumps of coal. Our God doesn't save us based on our goodness. He saves us based on his goodness. And that's good news because guess what? When, when you know you have sin, when you've experienced shame, when you've been defiled by what things uh, people have done to you, when you've harmed others, you don't get to stand up and say, I'm one of the good ones, God. Save me. No, you get to, God, you're good. God, you're great. It's God's greatness that saves, not our own. And then he says, hear us, God, forgive us, take note of us, act for us, God. Don't delay, God. He's like, you gotta imagine Daniel at, what do we say, 86 years old in that range? He's like, he's like God, can, can you hurry up? I'd really like to see this in my lifetime. I'd really like to know what's gonna happen next. When we're in suffering, when we're in trial, when we're in difficulty, we want the answer right now. And that's okay to want that. And it's also okay to recognize, or just to, to plead to God, God, hear me, forgive me. Don't delay, God, hurry up. His prayer almost seems like, like, he's, like, uh, like he's praying to God like God's a teenager on vacation. Like, hey, get, get up, come on. Come on, we're gonna get going today. Like, that's not what our relationship with God is. No, he, he does end this section by saying it's God's glory. God, it's your fame. Lord, everybody in the world knows that we're your people. So if you saved us, God, they'd see that you're good. Because right now they, they think you're weak. They think you're small. They think you're ineffective. Acts seem to save, to restore your people for your own sake that your name would be great. He prays this prayer and then he gets an answer. Verses 20 through 23 says this. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, who I had seen in the vision at first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I've now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I've come to tell you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. We prepare with God's word, we pray, we understand and confess who God is, who we are, we seek his will, and here Daniel gets a response. He gets a response, he gets a prophetic response word. God hears your prayers. God hears my prayers. God hears our prayers, and God answers. And yeah, sometimes we wanted that, that swift, like, bring the angel, tell me what it said. Like, like, I've never experienced that. I think it's noteworthy Daniel does, because Daniel, you know, he, he, we, we have like 90 years of Daniel's life, and we've got like three, four, five visions he's had. 
out of 90 years. This is a guy who like gets a book of the Bible written about him. But the, the thing that's true for Daniel is true for us. God hears your prayers. They're not hitting the ceiling. Gabriel the angel comes to Daniel with this word, and, and Gabriel's the one we met back in Daniel chapter 8. Uh, he helped Daniel understand this vision of kind of these future kingdoms that are coming, and the Antichrist, and some really saucy stuff from last week. And that's the stuff that Daniel like, I don't understand it. I'm going to keep going. But it says here in verse 20, that while Daniel was speaking and praying, confessing sin, pleading for mercy, I mean, that's a humble prayer. That's not name it, claim it, like, that's not, you know, God, if, I just love if you would convict my friend to understand how jacked up they are, right? No, this is, this is him like, God, I got sin. Or our people sinned. God, I know you're merciful. In this humble prayer, Daniel wonders, we wonder, is anybody listening? And it says, Gabriel came swiftly, God's paying attention, his answer's an overwhelming yes. At the beginning of your pleas, I heard him. That first utterance. Even that time when like, Ephesians talks about prayers that are too deep to even give words to, just a groaning, just like, God hears that. He understands it better than we do. He's like, I hear, and from that first moment, God heard and he answered, and he, in this case, he sent a prophetic messenger swiftly to Daniel. He says, do not delay. God responded immediately. And then, as he's praying for mercy, Gabriel says, comes to Daniel in a way he can understand, and he makes it really simple. He says, God hears, God acts. Why, Daniel? You are greatly loved. That is not a Daniel identity statement. That is an anyone in Christ identity statement. You are greatly loved. God hears you and God acts. You are not forsaken. You may have been in exile for decades. You're not forsaken. You may be crying out and all the society's all jacked up and the government's jacked up and the culture's jacked up and the families are jacked up and the church is jacked up. And he's like, you're greatly loved. I hear and I'm acting. I hear you and I'm acting. For God to, to hear and respond, that implies that we are praying. That helps us and our hearts be tuned and have orientation towards God's will. To be clear, God, God knows the desires of your heart without you like, with your eyes closed, praying in your head or out loud, like he knows the prayer is for us so that our hearts would be oriented towards God, towards his will, towards his word, towards his ways. And then he, he goes further. He says, hey, God, God's acting. Let me tell you how he's gonna act. Last section of verses, and then we'll pray. Verses 24 through 27 some of you, if you know Daniel chapter nine, you were like, when is he gonna talk about this? Because you know, Daniel's prayed, he starts to get an answer, God loves you, he's acting, and then he gives us this, verses 24 through 27. 70 weeks, or, or 70 times seven, 
are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, to anoint the most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moats built in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing, or shall be cut off for others. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy that city and the sanctuary. It shall end, it shall come with a flood, to the end there shall be a war, desolations are decreed, it shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week it shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall come uh, the one who makes desolate until the decree and is poured out on the desolator. What is that? Here's what's great. The point of chapter nine is the prayer. The vision matters. I'm not gonna punt on this. Just because something's difficult to understand in the Bible doesn't mean we shouldn't seek it out. But we should understand what's the prayer, what's the point of chapter nine? It's Daniel's prayer, it's his plea for mercy, it's his understanding of who God is, it's God acting and responding, and then actually what he's saying here, while there's words of desolation and all these things, he's actually talking about salvation coming. And so you can read 12 different commentators, and over the the years I, I have read several different commentators, and you get a dozen commentators, you get a dozen answers. What does the 40, uh, uh, 490 uh, uh, years mean, or weeks, or what all these different things? And so um, you get all these different details, and different commentators will say, well, if you start at this date, it leads to this, and if you count this as this, you get to this. And, and like, I could do charts for days up here. And all, like, all these different commentators will come up with different answers. And, and if you're like, well, is the Bible trustworthy? Like, what, what does that mean? Actually, that built my confidence in God's word. And the reason it built my confidence in God's word, I believe it should build confidence in God's word for you, is if like a bunch of different theologians can all find ways that this lines up with history, you should be like, oh, there's, there's one of these ways it has to work. Like, well, there's so many ways God proved that this is true. That's way better than like, I don't know, we can't find a single way this works in history at all. Instead, it builds confidence. And so while there's a diversity of opinions on the dates and and, and how this all breaks out, there's great unity about what it means. God's answering Daniel for his prayer of confession with a promise of a savior that he's gonna rebuild his holy city uh, before its destruction. And that's something that's gonna be fulfilled that was fulfilled. I'm gonna go with, I believe, Meaning if I'm picking a lane, when he talks about the rebuilding of Jerusalem, I think he's talking about like Ezra and Nehemiah and Jerusalem being rebuilt in those years, like, like those hundreds and hundreds of years leading up to then Jesus' arrival on the scene. And then Jesus being uh, the anointed one he talks about. That there's this completing of sacrificial work. There's a final destruction of Jerusalem that happens in 70 AD. The Romans actually do come in and destroy the city, destroy the sanctuary. And so regardless of the timeline, there are six things that that it says are gonna be accomplished, and I'll walk through them pretty quickly. Number one is this, finish transgressions. 
that God's people have been rebelling against God's authority. Jesus on the cross says, it's finished. It says he puts an end to sin, missing God's mark, not doing what is right. It says, finally, these are comprehensive atoning for iniquity. I talked about that bent out of shapeness. That if you continue without repentance, it's gonna keep hurting. If there's not healing, if there's not repentance. That God's mercy does come at a price, that justice has to be served. And in order for, for transgression and sin and iniquity, those are all three words talking comprehensively about the nature of sin in our lives. That God's answer for the comprehensive nature of our sin is a comprehensive savior. And so Jesus was sinless and Jesus suffers and Jesus dies on the cross in our place satisfying the justice that our sin requires. Then he goes on, verse to number four. He'll bring lasting righteousness. And this is what we call that great exchange. We give God our sin. He gives us his righteousness. It says sealing of vision and prophecy. This doesn't mean like, like closing it or ending it. What it means is confirming and affirming it. That all the things God said are gonna be true, find their yes in Jesus Christ. That we can trust what God says and does because of who Jesus is. As well, Hebrews 1 says that God used to speak to us through prophets like Daniel talked about here, but now it says he's spoken to us through his son. And so if you're like, I wonder what God says about us and, 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 and how he wants to direct us, it's through the Holy Spirit, it's through Jesus. And he says the most holy will be anointed. That Jesus is the holy anointed one. That when, when Jesus gets baptized, it's not like us being baptized. See, when we baptize, that's us pledging our allegiance to God, acknowledging our sin, mimicking Jesus' death and burial in the water, and then, and then claiming his resurrection as we come out of the water. Jesus didn't need to do that because Jesus didn't have sin. Jesus went to be baptized to identify with sinners who needed his grace. As it comes out, it says that, that um, the, the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove, and the voice of the Father says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Jesus is that anointed one. In the verse 26, where it talked about him being cut off, it also could translate as cut off but not for himself. That's the, the violent death that we remember every week when we take communion. If you're a Christian, we invite you to come forward in a couple minutes to take communion to remember Jesus' body broken for you. His blood shed for you. That Jesus was forsaken so that you could experience favor. That Jesus was cut off so that you could be brought into the family. That Jesus was exiled so that you could be home. That's what we remember every week when we take communion. See, there's a, there was a prince of the Roman Empire that came in named Caesar who was called the Prince of Peace and decades after Jesus died in 70 AD, like I said, he came in and he destroyed the city, he destroyed the temple, so there's no more sacrifices. So we don't need to go to a temple. We don't need to make a sacrifice. We worship Jesus and remember his sacrifice for us. All the promises of God find their yes in him. So 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, we praise God and we give him glory and we trust Jesus. This is a sermon on prayer. So I'm gonna invite um, Garrett and Brian up and, and in the next couple minutes, I, I just wanna lead us, if I could, for just a couple minutes in a time of prayer. 
following Daniel's pattern. Just four or five minutes here. And you can, you can stand if you want to. You can um, bow your heads quietly. You can pray out loud. But I want to lead us through praise and confession, repentance and a plea, and finally resting in the work of Jesus. So over the next five minutes, I'm just going to lead us through kind of a minute at a time. And I want you in this next minute, whether somebody with you, quietly or out loud, just I want you for the next minute, just pray, praising God's good character. Some attribute of God that you can remember to think about. Just for the next minute, I want us to just be in prayer, praising God for his good character. Let's just pray. Confessing God's goodness. God, you're the author of life. God, you're the designer of, of all things. Lord, everything that is good that we enjoy in our life comes from you. Every breath that we have comes from you, God. So God, we just confess your goodness, your mercy. And now, Lord, we just want to confess our sin. So next minute, I want you to just allow your heart to be open to God's goodness and his mercy for you and not allowing you to have a prayer of confession for our sin, for our shame, for our brokenness. Lord, we just confess that we're sinners. Lord, we're sinners in need of a savior. Lord, our sin separates us from you. It separates us from one another. Lord, we know that individually and collectively there's sin and brokenness that's impacted the world. None of us have been immune to this, God. We know that when we confess our sins to you, God, you are faithful and just to forgive us. That sinner is not the final definition of what you've given us when we're in Christ. Lord, over this next moments, I want us to just be in a prayer of repentance. God, turning from our sin to, to turning towards your truth, to your ways, your word, and your will for us. Let's pray in repentance. Lord, we know that repentance is a gift that you give. So Lord, where we pray and ask for repentance, Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would grant that for us.
Lord, that we would turn from our desires for, for control, our desires for um, our name to be great, uh, Lord, for the, the places and ways that we aren't trusting you, Lord, that we would, we would turn from sin. That, Lord, we would not just turn from sin, that we would turn towards you. Lord, yes, that we want your face to shine upon us, but Lord, turn our face to yours. Let our orientation be one of humility, one of dependence, one of reliance on you, God, for all things. Lord, we wanna just, after confessing who you are, confessing our sin, calling for repentance, Lord, we just, we just wanna plea for our longings. Lord, I don't, you know the hearts of the people here. You know the hearts of the churches that are gathering this morning. Lord, we just pray that you would actively work in the lives of your people. Over the next few minutes, I just pray that we would be a people praying for repentance and restoration in our hearts, in our families, in our churches, in our communities and beyond. Lord, let's pray. Let us be a people of prayer. Please. Lord, we know that we make plans, we have desires, we have longings, but Lord, you're the one that guides our footsteps. Lord, if, if, if not for you, Lord, everything that we do and build is in vain. Yet, Lord, we know that when we walk and we work for your will, nothing we do is in vain. Holy Spirit, we pray for revival in our individual hearts. We pray for revival within our marriages and our families. Lord, we pray for revival within this church and within this community. Holy Spirit, we pray for those who are here and those who are far, who do not know you. God, Holy Spirit, that you bring life, that you bring confession of your greatness, that you bring confession of sin, that you bring repentance that leads to, to forgiveness, yes, but flourishing. And God, where, where we all, like this day and the days forward, I'm sure we'll continue to have longings. Lord, let us also be a people who rest in the saving work of your son, Jesus. Lord, let us be rooted, let us be resolved, but also let us rest in the work of your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.